1: From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: It is Monday, January 23rd, 2023. A brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. You can also catch our free podcast on demand, no charge, every day when the show is over. That's GuyBensonShow.com, our main website. You can also check out Foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at guybensonshow. Show. Lots of good content there. We'll get to a very busy lineup here on the program shortly. But I want to begin right out of the gate with our first guest. Former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is out with a brand-new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. And, Mr. Secretary, it is always great to have you here on the show. Welcome back.
3: It's great to be back. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate
2: it. So you give a lot of advice in terms of public service and defending American interests in this book, Never Give an Inch. And I sometimes like to zoom out and talk – to someone who has not just the experience as Secretary of State but CIA director, congressman, when you look at your public service thus far and your career in this space th- thus far, what would you say is the most significant legacy that you have contributed to in your mind?
3: Guy, okay. Boy, it's, it's hard to know, and I don't spend a lot of time yet thinking about legacy. But if if you look at the book, Never Give an Inch, it's a it's a theory of public service. It says, look, it, there are things that, that we can compromise on, but there are a handful of things. Uh, America is the most sex, exceptional nation in the history of civilization, the, the greatness that our founders bequeathed to us. You just have to stay at it. You can't give an inch. And so if you look from my time as a young soldier now, goodness gracious, almost 40 years ago – through my time as a member of Congress and then CIA and state, in each of those places, I was every day trying to do my best to deliver on behalf of the American people. I was, I was fearless. I was relentless. Um, I didn't get it, we didn't get it right every single day, but we were determined to put the American people in a place that made their life and that of their children grandchildren more prosperous and more secure. And I think for those who enter public service, there, there can't be any higher expectation.
2: Thinking specifically about the foreign policy of the Trump administration, which in many ways was quite different than what we're seeing now under the subsequent administration, is there something that you think is the top Trump-Pompeo foreign policy legacy at the top of the list?
3: We were four years of reminding the world that America can be strong and can deter aggression around the world. And it doesn't have to send the 82nd Airborne every day or 40,000 soldiers someplace to do it. Okay, we were we had a, we had a model that was just fundamentally different. We we didn't we didn't we weren't expeditionary, we weren't expansive, but we didn't allow any new wars to start for four years. And you know we 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 deterred through American power and strength. We crushed the caliphate. We pushed back on Chairman Kim. We were the first administration to acknowledge the threat from the Chinese Communist Party. Putin didn't invade Ukraine. We have four significant peace deals in the middle east all of this without significant military conflict i think that is a an achievement that looks and feels like the reagan legacy right which is peace through strength actually can work and if you look at what's changed these past two years i think it's the absence of that strength
2: ukraine comes up a number of times in this book never give an inch there's this moment now mr secretary In American politics, especially on the right, a certain element of the right in U.S. politics, where there's a growing sense that maybe Ukraine has gotten enough support from the U.S. It's not really in our national interest to continue to support the Ukrainians if it ever was. Uh, Some, I would say, wrong in my mind. Equivalencies between Putin and Zelensky. There's just some people saying, you know, it's not our fight I know we don't have boots on the ground, but let's just stop spending money there. You know, who's really to say who's in the right? I wonder how that kind of talk strikes you based on your experience. And if you think that's wrong headed, what American interests are at stake right now in Ukraine?
3: So, Guy, yes, there, there's always been an element of the conservative movement that has been, call it uh, isolationist, call it un- unwilling. Uh, to do what it is we're doing in Ukraine today. Um, I think they fundamentally just misunderstand risk to people right here at home in the United States, uh, to your point about American interests. Uh, Xi Jinping is watching what's taking place in Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin has no intention of stopping in Ukraine. He will. He will. He's told us as much. He will continue to advance throughout all of Europe. And we have deep interest in helping a, a sovereign nation defend itself. They haven't asked for our soldiers. They just want our stuff. And you can see what happens to the American economy when we allow Russia to gain power and influence. When authoritarian regimes are on the rise, the American people suffer here at home. So while I, I, I wish it was as easy as saying what happens, saying that what happens in Kiev stays in Kiev, that's just simply not the case. Ask any Kansas farmer who grows red winter wheat, you can see the impact on fertilizer price, on farm implements. You can see that these things very quickly begin to have impacts on ordinary families all across America. Uh, We should have done more. We should have done more faster. We should do more faster tomorrow. We need to bring this war to a conclusion as quickly as we can in a way that gets us true permanent peace in the region.
2: When someone of your stature is writing a memoir where there's really a lot of nuggets to be shared really spanning years – When the book comes out, inevitably there are some interesting little morsels and nuggets that people say, okay, that's kind of juicy. And I'm always curious about sort of the thought process of what someone like you would include in a book or not include in a book. Uh, Obviously, you tell some candid stories about your interactions with all sorts of world leaders, including former President Trump. Uh, You also take what some people are describing as a couple shots at someone like Nikki Haley, who served in the administration with you. You refer to her as a bit player. In the administration, not a team player, uh, suggested at least a theory that she was trying to maneuver to become the vice presidential nominee in 2020. She's come back saying this is lies and gossip just to uh, to sell a book. I just wonder how you kind of think through the process of what you want to say in a book like this, knowing that it's going to rankle some people.
3: (laughs) Again, that's a really good question Uh, because I thought about this a lot as I was writing it. There are things that. I didn't include there that would have been interesting, might have sold a few more books, would have been a great story or great headline for someone. But I didn't include them because I didn't think they captured the narrative of what it was I wanted the American people to know about my optics on the four years of the Trump administration. Uh, Look, we we were challenged in lots of ways. We suffered under the Russia hoax for the first two and a half years. And we had lots of people who didn't want to be part of it, conservatives who said, I don't want to be part of the Trump administration. That's too hard. Everything Donald Trump touches turns to ash. You will be diminished in the world. Mike, your stature, people would tell me, Mike, your stature will fall. But what I wanted to tell was a story that said, no, the folks who were on the mission, the folks who could separate uh, the noise from the signal and put their helmet on every day for four years to get after protecting America, uh, we delivered. And and those those who chose differently chose not to be part of the administration or who, when the going got tough, decided, you know what, I'm going to go do something different. Um, I included some of those narratives because they were part of the challenge we faced. Putting the right people in the right places matters an awful lot to presidents, and it was very difficult for all of us to get the team on the field in the way that we needed to.
2: Obviously, it's no secret that you're at least testing the waters of potentially running for president in 2024. You haven't made any sort of decision, but – Let's be honest. You're sort of doing some of the things that people tend to do when they're seriously considering it. Uh, I guess one question related to what you were just saying, you know, was there some pre positioning in the book against potential rivals, which is why you included certain things in the book? A and B, if you are indeed seriously thinking about throwing your hat in the ring for 2024, what does that process look like? What does that timetable look like? I'd imagine uh, your wife will be a crucial Data point on whether or not this is something that you pursue. I'm just wondering how you're thinking about that.
3: No, indeed, guy, and you've met Susan. Yeah, she will. She will be. She will have. A, she will have more than her fair share of in that. Um, I don't doubt that.
2: She's
3: a patriot, and if we think this is the right time, I'm confident she and I will both decide it's the right thing to do. You know, your earlier point. I didn't write this book uh, as a memoir. It's it's not a story of my life so much as it is the uh, four years. Uh, in fact, it was supposed to run in August, but the author didn't get the manuscript done in time, uh, and so you know he was he, he was behind the power curve. Uh You know, it's interesting. You, you talk about that. This wasn't intended to go after anybody who might potentially be running in this race. In fact, there were things, stories that I contemplated having in, and I pulled out because I thought people might say just that, and I I didn't want that. I wanted this to be an important positive story about how you take risk, how you deliver for the American people. And, you know, a couple things have been picked out. I kind of regret that. Maybe I I should have pulled them. Um, But it is important for the American people to see all that was going on inside what was an incredibly unique – I mean, right, this was an incredibly unique administration. I I ran a machine shop in Wichita, Kansas. There'll never be another CI director who ran a machine shop. This was was a unique administration. I wanted them to see that warts and all.
2: Mr. Secretary, you and I, one of the most memorable trips of my life was when I accompanied you and your delegation to Russia, uh, to Sochi, where you met with your counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, and then also Vladimir Putin showed up uh, unexpectedly, at least to the press corps. All of a sudden, there he was in the room, and it was eye-opening. It was a little bit unsettling at times being in Russia. I remember the reason I mention this is I remember very distinctly the many – sort of processes and protocols that were in place on that trip when it came to securing sensitive information and potentially classified information or even just our personal information. We really had to jump through some hoops going to Russia, being on Russian soil. We also have protocols here at home when it comes to sensitive material. And, of course, one of your predecessors, the Secretary of State, famously had a huge scandal on her watch with her secret email server that was unsecured and had top-secret information on it. We've now seen back-to-back presidents embroiled in something like this, former President Trump, the whole Mar-a-Lago issue, and now this ongoing rolling scandal involving President Biden where we got even more information just this past weekend, yet more classified material found uh, in his private home where it should not have been. Can you just first, for our audience, talk about what taking – classified material seriously actually looks like? Because the White House says Biden takes it very seriously. Obviously, the actions don't line up with that. In terms of the way that you went about that, what does that look like in practice?
3: Well, okay, that was that was a remarkable trip to Sushi, and you're right. We asked not only the media that was there, but the government officials, my team that was traveling, all had uh, a very strict set of protocols about how to protect the information that we were all traveling with. Uh, and this holds true here in the United States as well. Every one of us who sees uh, sensitive or classified documents as a signed agreement that says they will handle it properly, I cannot for the life of me figure out how, uh, as a senator, President Biden appears to have gotten documents out of the uh, Capitol Hill skiff. I was on the Intelligence Committee when I was a House member. It just seems implausible to me. Uh, but it's, this is serious stuff. This, uh, w- w- there's often people oh, – stuff's overclassified. Maybe that's true, but if that material is more classified, you have a responsibility to handle it in a very precise, very careful way. And it appears that uh, not only did President Biden, but President Trump, and I served on the Benghazi committee. I can affirm that Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, didn't do their basic responsibility to protect uh, the American soldiers who and the American sailors and Marines whose information or whose lives could be at risk if this information gets into the wrong hands.
2: When you hear the current president of the United States, in light of everything that has come to light over the last two weeks, look into the camera and say, as he did, I believe on Friday, that he has no regrets and there's no there there. This is before the latest there dropped. What's your reaction to that?
3: It's heartbreaking. I suppose I have other reactions too, maybe anger as well. Uh, I suppose it's possible that some point in time, accidentally, I had classified information, and I got it to the wrong place. I, I, I suppose it's possible. Um, I did my level best to make sure. But had I found out that I did, if someone said, Mike, you had this in the wrong place, I would have an enormous amount of regret. I would be enormously focused on finding out what it was, how it got to the wrong place, how to make sure it never happened again. And to the extent it created any problems, making sure I did everything I could to mitigate the harm that I may have imposed on someone – to hear a president say that just blithely write this office, I have no regrets, suggests an ungroundedness and unseriousness, and someone who ought not to be handling classified information. If you're not going to take it seriously, if you don't believe this is your duty, then you ought not to see it.
2: Secretary Pompeo, I was also eager months ago to read Attorney General Barr's book, his memoir. I thought it was excellent. We had him on the show. Uh, I've been eager to read your book, and I've enjoyed what I've read already so far in Never Give an Inch. Sometimes, and you said it's not fully a political memoir, although you are in some ways talking about things that you've drawn on throughout your life and your experiences, particularly in the Trump administration, for people who aren't necessarily inclined to buy and read this type of book, but at least have enough interest that they're listening to a show like this one. What would be your pitch to them why you think Never Give an Inch is, you know, uh, worth plunking down a couple dollars for? Oh,
3: goodness. Uh, two things. One, there's some great spy stories. Anybody who loves spy stories ought to take a yep. look at this book. If you've watched The Americans, if you've ever watched Jack Ryan, uh, you get a chance to see uh, some, not all, but some of the amazing work that RCI officers do around the world. Real stuff, day. real life stuff. Real, re- real stuff. The- these are serious people who want nothing more than did you put the dagger in their teeth and get out there and protect America. I guess the second thought is, uh, the, what I spend a lot of time talking about is leadership, and that broadly applied to my time in business. Uh, it certainly applied to my time at CIA in the State Department, and the challenges leaders face, and how one can think about confronting those challenges—the organizational and leadership challenges, the ethical challenges. Uh, everyone who works has a boss. Um, I, I speak to those in ways that I think are universal and go far beyond American national security. I think they are. I think they are. At least I hope they are insightful for folks who are. Uh, leading small teams or big organizations in whatever walk of life, in the church, in the synagogue, or in the business world.
2: Former Kansas Congressman, former CIA Director, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, our guest. His book is Never Give an Inch, freshly out, available everywhere, subtitled Fighting for the America I Love, and how that might take shape in the future, I guess we will see. Mr. Secretary, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time today.
3: Guy, thank you, sir. You have a good day.
2: Well, we are off with a bang in a brand new week on the Guy Benson Show. Monday edition, so much left to get to, including an update from Atlanta, some of the riots there over the weekend. Kimberly Strassel will be here coming up later. One of our Fox News colleagues assaulted in New York City. A horrible story. We'll get details from him all straight ahead.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for tuning in. So there's some news on the political front. It had been rumored for a while, then reported in recent days that Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff under President Biden, was going to be heading for the exits. That has now been effectively confirmed that Klain is in his closing weeks in that role. And the Associated Press, among others, now reporting that Jeff Zietz will replace him. That is Biden's COVID czar earlier in this administration who might be uh, stepping into the role of chief of staff, one of the shakeups that's happening. I know some people are sort of raising their eyebrows at Klain, you know, heading for the exits or the off ramp in the middle of this classified document scandal that keeps getting worse. That is certainly an interesting element of the timing. However, Klain, I'd imagine, wants to go and spend more time with his family and especially pursuing His truest passion in life, full time, retweeting Jennifer Rubin. The Guy Benson Show is back next.
1: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
2: We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. So over the weekend, I was seeing in my social media feeds a lot of action out of Atlanta and Georgia involving some pretty disturbing scenes. Some protests that turned into riots. Some familiar scenes, police cars being torched. It wasn't something that I saw A lot of mainstream journalists covering very closely. Conservatives were talking about it. What's going on here? It was covered a little bit. What exactly has been happening in Atlanta and why? Joining me now is Scott Reinhold, a.k.a. Rhino, co-host of the morning show, Morning Extra, along with Tug Coward on Atlanta's one and only conservative news talk station, our great affiliate down there, Extra, 106.3 FM And Rhino, it's great to have you back on the show.
5: It's great to be back. Thank you so much, Guy, for having us, and uh, I'm glad to be able to talk to you about this. It's a story I've been following for over two years and warning about saying that this is where we're heading.
2: Over two years, right? So it's boiled over just in the last couple of days, but just give us the background here. How was this two years in the making in some ways?
5: Well, this started when Rashard Brooks, who was killed in front of a Wendy's by an officer named Garrett Rolfe during the summer of domestic terrorism or the summer of love, as they wanted to call it. But what was going on when they were tearing down CNN Center, when they were at the Wendy's and they were burning it down? And when uh, Rashard Brooks pulled the taser away from Garrett Rolfe, the police officer, fired it back at him. Our mayor at the time, Keisha Lance Bottoms, came out and really defended Richard Brooks before anything else came out, never even gave that officer time. So it was already labeled that this was a police officer and an officer-involved shooting. And that's when we started to see some of the members for Antifa and BLM start moving into the city to start some of these protests. And some of them, especially the Antifa members, started heading to What was already called the uh, cop city or they were already talking about because the deal was already in the making. And that's where they decided to hide out inside the old Atlanta prison farm.
2: Okay, so this cop city thing, I know that at least part of the protest is about some sort of, you know, planned law enforcement facility. That is one of the components that led to a series of events culminating in some of these violent riots They're anti-cop, period, right? So they're they're not going to like anything that the police do. And then there was someone who was killed, right? One of the protesters was killed. And if you see some of the left-wing posts about this, it's like just this innocent victim of yet more police, quote-unquote, violence. Uh, Actually, the details of that shooting are extremely damning for the now deceased individual. Talk about
5: that. Yeah, they're definitely damning now and we have to go back because this started uh really about 2 years ago when the first problems began when they started to look into who was being who was involved in building what they call Cop City which is really the Atlanta Police and Fire Training Center. And the center was made so that they would have an area where they could put out fires, they could do live shooting exercises and it was approved by city council, mostly Democrats, and Keisha Lance Bottom even even talked about how this would be used to train officers to de-escalate these techniques. So it was actually a good idea. So they have been there lighting fires. They've gone to the construction company, Brassfield Gorey, and they've wrote, you know, in graffiti, on their walls. They broke into their offices. They started throwing Molotov cocktails at police. These are stories that even our paper here, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, never really covered or talked about. It was something that only we would talk about on air. Well, we fast forward to so ha-
2: just 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 to jump in, it's like happening at the fringes, at the margins, some people turning a blind eye to it, but an escalating series of attacks against this facility itself and the people who would help build it a place to, just to underscore what you're saying, Rhino, to train police officers and firefighters. You would think that people who want accountability would be in favor of more and better training, but because of their animus for the entire you know, department and, and anyone who wants to be an officer in law enforcement, this is the enemy. So there was this series of attacks, lower level, and then it sort of boiled over with this, shooting that i just referenced get let's talk about that
5: yeah the so the shooting this was what was going to make it boil all over because what they do is they camp inside these trees and they pretend they call it defund the forest and that's their twitter account and they put out there that they're defunding the forest or defending it and what it is is really defund the police and this is one of the protesters that was there on the day of they've been going in clearing these guys out so they could get the construction companies in there to really just layer and level the land. Now, they want to tell you that this is just taking away the green space. In fact, the green space is involved in there. Well, this gentleman was in one of his tents, and as they swept through, he decided to fire a shot through his tent at the officer and hit him in the hip. Uh, Luckily, the officer, a state trooper, did survive. Unfortunately, you do not have to have body cams all the time if you're a state trooper. And because there were different uh, divisions of police, you had the Georgia State, Troopers, you had the DeKalb Police, the Atlanta Police, different police units there. It got confusing at the time, so they're complaining about the body cams. Uh, But now we found out that the nine millimeter that was used and the ballistic tests do match the gun that Tehran did buy, and he bought the gun legally, so it was a legal gun. But he had no right to be on this property, and this property. Oh, he shot a cop. I mean, so so just,
2: just to be clear, here he is trying to prevent the construction of a duly enacted and passed by the city council training center for police and fire departments in Atlanta. And he was there kind of squatting and trying to occupy the place to prevent it from getting built as part of this left-wing protest. He bought a gun. He had the gun there in his tent and he shot a cop. He was then killed and they're like treating him like he's some sort of victim martyr, which led to the, quote-unquote peaceful protests, which then became a lot less peaceful pretty quickly with some pretty, like, familiar patterns, Rhino. So walk us through that timeline. How did things sort of spin out of control?
5: So the day after the shooting, what they were trying to say was the officer was hit by a friendly fire. So that made everybody get really upset and that they didn't have the body cam footage. So they went ahead and they already put out what they called the Night of Rage on the 20th of January. And quickly Twitter found it and said, okay, that's it. We're taking it down. They took that down, but they have plenty of channels. And Antifa has been here long enough where they know. And five of the six people that were involved and arrested on domestic terrorist charges aren't even from this city. And that's where the big problem is. They keep coming into the city and setting up this autonomous zone. So as soon as they were able to get it out, that they would have a peaceful protest on the 21st at the underground. Everybody knew there was still a call to action to have violence against police officers. And they put hits out on police officers. And the one thing they did here and what they do is they say, we're not attacking small businesses. We're attacking the businesses that get involved in taking away this tree cover. Places like Wells Fargo, places like banks, Truist Bank, and places like, of course, the police officers, their vehicles, And there are precincts as well.
2: And again, this is being done, just how twisted this is, this is all being done in the name of preventing a training center from being built. I mean, we have laws, right? We are a society that at least should be a society of law and order. This was passed by the elected representatives of the people of Atlanta, and they don't want that because they hate cops. And in the process of protesting the cops... One of them shot a cop and was then killed. That's what happens. If you shoot a cop, there's a high likelihood that things are going to end very badly for you. That's what happened to this guy. And they're treating him like a martyr. And using that to justify and sort of trying to to deny his culpability in shooting an officer, they're treating him like some sort of hero or saint and using that to vindicate in their minds or justify further violence and then there's the coverage of this. At some point, there's, you know, enough stuff on fire and, you know, open violence and, and conflict that the media has to cover it. I see that CNN over the weekend had a guest on a an independent freelance journalist, quote, unquote, who said that the word "violence" should not be used to describe the riots. Uh, and this is, you know, split screen basically from a police cruiser on fire. So, again, echoes back to 2020 And some of the gaslighting, I mean, where they like they are literally trying to say it's mostly peaceful when you've got things, you know, being burned down by these arsonists and these rioters. Uh, It turns out that that same freelance journalist that CNN gave a platform to was retweeting the GoFundMe for the family of the guy who shot a cop. That's an interesting choice to put someone like that on the air, but that's a choice that they made. What are you noticing Rhino, about the national coverage such as it exists of what's happening Versus the local coverage and what's the feedback you're hearing at extra from callers is from people in the community how they're responding to what's happening.
5: So this is a weird scenario now because now I've followed Antifa in Portland. I've followed Antifa for years and so I know what they do. I know how they work I know what they want to get done. A lot of people here don't know that they actually think these people are here to defend the trees and it's not what it is now what the people are starting to realize is we're not doing it again. We've done this in 2020. So I'm kinda happy it happened here in the state of Georgia because we have a really strong governor, a conservative governor who will not take this. We have a attorney general in Chris Carr who said no, Violence is going to be used when we talk about this event because this is what it is. He, he shot a police officer. That is a violence. A lighting a police car, that is violence. Breaking windows is violence. So if this were to happen in a, a democratically controlled area like Portland, Oregon or Oregon in general or California, yeah, Seattle, it would continue right. to go on. Yeah, exactly. But here we're putting an end to it. And I think people all over the country are like, hey, there needs to be change. Yes. We all know that people need to be trained better But this is not the way to go about it And they're getting tired of Antifa Making their cities look bad Because once again, these aren't Atlantans These are people from out of the state Trying to make an issue out of something that isn't They don't Mm -hmm. want any kind of government And now Democrats are realizing that And they're on the same page We have to give the mayor, who is a Democrat Andre Dickens, some credit He's come out, he's talked about it He explained the violence, he explained that the gun was found He explained about exploding they use and that this is not a peaceful protest
2: yeah I mean it's by definition it's not peaceful you don't get to call it that I know the media really tries uh, the the famous what was it the famous Chiron at CNN uh, fiery p- mostly peaceful but fiery protests while stuff you know the citys burning down in, in Minneapolis I believe it was a number of summers ago you can't keep trying to force field uh, force feed people that kind of narrative when the images speak for themselves and contradict directly uh, any type of spin that's being put on it. You mentioned you know, the mayor speaking clearly about this. I saw some of the comments and postings from Governor Kemp, very strong, this type of thing will not be tolerated. Uh, to your point, some of the folks who have been arrested on terrorism charges, you look at the mugshots, and these are just like left-wing dregs, white people uh, who aren't from Atlanta. Like, coming in and doing their domestic terrorism, Antifa, like, tourism almost. Like, on their little safari of destruction, this is what they do. They're horrible, sort of just loser people who come in to attack police and destroy things. And they're interlopers coming from elsewhere. I'm sure there are people in in the community there who, who do resent that. I have seen, though, on the other hand... A lot of Democratic politicians, some of whom are from Georgia, some of whom are just national figures, who don't really want to comment on this, have not been returning phone calls for comment from, like, Fox News Digital. I saw a very sort of tepid tweet from Senator Warnock on this. It seems like there are some folks, especially left-aligned politicians, who would just prefer that everyone avert their eyes from this whole thing.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that goes to, I think it connects to the Biden document story. You know, here we've listened to them talk about Donald Trump and his documents, and here they're caught doing the same thing. Here they talked about January 6th and an insurrection, and you'll talk about three Marines. One of them puts a MAGA hat on a statue, and that is covered like all day, all day. And then something like this where a cop gets shot. Now, all of a sudden, we get no coverage for it. So I think that Democrats and Republicans alike are saying, hey, this is not good. We have to put an end to this. And I think Democrats are getting scared that they're now going to see the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party and the things that they've said on both almost every issue at this point and show like this is the real violence this is what's happening they're lying about the prison farm this prison farm has been clear-cut in 2009 there was a fire there wasn't a tree left in 2017 there was a fire no trees left this isn't a forest that they've been saving for years up to three years ago they tried to make it a green space the democratic city council voted no and the whole issue fall fell to the ground and that's when they decided to go ahead and make a change and make it a training center so everything that Antifa has said is a lie and people know it now they're not going to buy the lie of what this is this is about defunding the police and attacking police officers
2: yep and when you shoot a cop and you burn police cars i think any potential reservoir of goodwill should be absolutely gone and there should be no messing around with this sort of thing and there's been indulgence of this garbage in some of the cities that you've mentioned. And it sounds like in the state of Georgia under Governor Kemp, uh, that is not going to be the case, and and that's a good thing. Scott Reinhold, Rhino, our guest, co-host of the Morning Extra on our affiliate down in Atlanta, 106.3. Extra, always enjoy being down there. Hope to see you guys soon, and thanks for filling us in on the local story that's going national.
5: Absolutely. Thank you again for having me, Guy. I can't wait till you come back in town. We'll do a Braves game, and we got another World Series to win, so we need you to throw out that first pitch. We're not going to let right, you go. Right <laughs> Have a great <laughs> one.
2: Sounds great. Good to talk to you. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, speaking of Antifa and attacking police officers, the child of a prominent Democratic politician was arrested over the weekend for assaulting a cop in this type of setting in Massachusetts. Which politician was it? We'll give you the details right after this.
1: Fresh Conservative Talk, Guy Benson Show.
2: Back here on the Guy Benson Show. So House Democrats have a new leadership team. Right Their minority leader running their caucus is Hakeem Jeffries, who's an election denier, multiple times over. And his number two is Massachusetts Democrat Catherine Clark. Congresswoman Clark's child was arrested over the weekend. This is not a minor. This is an adult. Arrested over the weekend for allegedly assaulting a police officer. This person was caught spray-painting all cops are bastards on a building, was arrested in the process, allegedly assaulted an officer. Other members of this left-wing Antifa group, aren't these just wonderful, upstanding people? We're just talking about them in Atlanta. This is now their, like, Boston cell or offshoot. Hurled profanities at the police for making the arrest, and another member of this Antifa gang assaulted another cop in the process. So this is the child, and I keep saying child because... It's confusing what this person's gender is. I've seen different names. I've seen daughter and son. The congressman put out a tweet referring to, I think, her as a Riley. I think it might be a non-binary they-them situation. I think biologically male. I don't know. But she tweeted last night, my daughter, there we go, was arrested in Boston I love Riley. This is a very difficult time in the cycle of joy and pain in parenting. And basically said that she was confident in the legal process. But got the binary, non-binary adult kid spray painting all cops are bastards and then attacking a cop physically. This congresswoman rails against the extremist, dangerous Republicans. Maybe she should be concerned about her own family on that front. Another hour coming up.
1: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Ty Benson Show.
2: It's a brand-new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in on this Monday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free after the show every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. A lot to get to here in these last two hours of today's show. Let's get you a Fox News alert. With the Dow closing up 253 points today, finishing up at thirty three thousand six hundred and 28 joining us now is kim strassel potomac watch columnist at the wall street journal member of the editorial board there a fox news contributor and kim it's always great to have you welcome back to the show
6: hi guy it's great to be here
2: i want to play at least one sound bite for you uh corinne jean pierre having another tough day aren't they all for her but uh, it's particularly tough these last few weeks the news Assembled, you know, journalists, the press corps at the White House still asking questions about this uh, Biden document scandal, considering that even more documents were found over the weekend. I thought maybe we were done with this. Apparently not. Uh, we'll get into some of those details later this hour. I have even more questions. They aren't resolving questions. There are more and more questions. So Karine Jean-Pierre was asked a question about this assertion, Kim, that we keep hearing from the White House, from the president and his defenders about how seriously he takes classified materials. Uh, here's how she tried to handle, I think, a completely fair question. Cut 24.
6: Why then did it take several searches and the FBI coming in to uncover the full extent
0: of the documents? I
6: understand your question. I've, I've said many times, the president has said many times, he takes this very seriously. You've heard directly from him. You just said that his team is cooperating fully and just want to add. You know, and you heard from his team that the FBI was invited into uh, the president's home. I'm not going to go beyond that. That is that was in the statement that was released on Saturday. Again, these are questions uh, that should that have been answered to our. You know, that have been answered from here. That has been answered to, for my colleagues. Anything else? My colleagues are. My colleague is going to speak to all of you in just a few minutes, a so few moments, and uh, you can ask more more yeah, in, you in detail. My-
2: uh, so then. They went on to press on this point. Why does he keep saying, like, what is the evidence that he takes this seriously, considering that now there have been all these discoveries of all these documents? And Corinne Jean-Pierre's response was, well, he takes it seriously because he has said multiple times that he takes it seriously, just like a completely circular answer, Kim. Uh, They've got to do better than that, although I guess the facts aren't friendly to them.
6: Well, right, because you have to judge them on what they have done, not what they have said. And here's the problem. They said, trust us. We sent Biden's attorneys in and they did a thorough search of Biden's residence in Wilmington and his Rehoboth Beach House and that Penn Biden Center. And we've turned over everything that was found. Only now— The department of justice goes in and it turns out they didn't get it all so that makes it very difficult for them to simply say we take this seriously and you should trust us and i would also point out guy that i don't think the president did himself any favors last week when he was asked about this in California, and he said, I have no regret. Um, I, yep. you know, I am following what the lawyers have told me that they want me to do, and there's no there there. Well, you know what? You could at least express some regret, that, regardless of how this came to be, that there is classified information wandering around in your residences, and it has been that way in some cases for almost 15 years, given that some of this seems to stretch back to his time in the Senate.
2: That's exactly right. And speaking of, because I was really hammering on the no regrets point on Friday after he said it. And then I think the no regrets posture looks even worse after yet another round of discovery at that same house, this time by the DOJ, by the FBI. So earlier today in the same press conference at the White House, the press briefing, someone asked a KJP, why doesn't the president have regrets? given the fact that classified documents keep turning up. And Corinne Jean-Pierre, part of her answer as well, it's, it speaks for itself. And I guess that's true, uh, Kim, just probably not the way that she intended it.
6: Yeah, exactly. I mean, just especially given that the president gave that uh, interview a couple of months ago in which he was so critical of Donald Trump, which, by the way, you totally can be, But Mm -hmm. then to end up in your situation where you are with a a similar problem, although, by the way, in some ways, in its own ways, worse in some ways, given, again, that they said that they were handling this. And can I just point something out, too, that I Mm -hmm. think Biden needs to be called out on? You know, in that same press conference where he said, I have no regrets, he said, you know, we told uh, the National Archives and the Department of Justice about this. Correction. That is not what happened. And I think it's important that everybody understand this. The lawyer who was searching at the Penn Biden facility, when he found documents, his first call was to the White House. The White House then informed the National Archives. And it was the National Archives inspector general who ultimately got in touch with the Department of Justice. It was not the White House that reached out to the Department of Justice about this. And you could potentially think that they were very hopeful that when they alerted the National Archives that the archives would simply take possession of these documents and the whole thing would go bye-bye. The Department of Justice potentially never needed to know now, that's not what happened, but this argument that they have went running to the Department of Justice you know, to surrender all of this and alert them to what has happened, that is not exactly what yep. happened on the record. Well,
2: and also – and a few guests have made this point in recent weeks – it does seem strange because I guess the, the story, the official story is they were packing up that office and they were moving the stuff because he was no longer going to be working there, so they were – Basically, just in the process of moving, and that's how these things happen to be discovered in a closet. I mean, who sends lawyers to go move? Right? Who sends lawyers to go do that kind of thing? That just seemed like a very weird detail here. That maybe there's an explanation that makes perfect sense. Just at first blush, it seems odd to me to be like, "Oh yeah, we've got to pack up some stuff over at the old office. Uh, let's let's send our attorneys to do that." weird Uh, and then you're right the timeline that you just described was exactly correct and they've just been giving us pieces of information dripping as it continues right and and unfortunately for them uh they've kept embarrassing themselves by not exactly putting a bow on this thing and having it all resolved even though they sat on it for two months Waited until after the election. This was discovered before the election. We know that uh, Anita Dunn, who's a big Democratic sort of comms spin person, famously tried to freeze Fox News out of the Obama White House for a while back in 2009, went to war with Fox. That's Anita Dunn. She's married to Biden's personal lawyer. They were the ones sort of driving the secrecy and the cover-up here. Then they finally revealed what was happening, uh, and it was reported in the press months later And even then they couldn't get all their ducks in a row, which I think is just, you know, inept. Meanwhile, Kim, I just want to ask you, because I know you've written about the double standards at play on classified documents. Uh, I could not imagine a tweet that helps exemplify that better than this tweet yesterday afternoon from Peter Strzok, who, of course, was uh, the famous fanatically anti-Trump partisan who was – a core element of the FBI investigation into the whole Russia collusion false narrative, who ultimately got fired because he was just so biased and and you can maybe shed additional light on his background. But he offered, because he's now, I think, uh, an analyst for one of our competitors, either NBC or CNN picked him up. He tweeted this yesterday, quote, applying the facts of what we know, of both Biden and Trump's document sagas, including yesterday's consent search of Biden's residence, So this is in light even of the new discovery. Based on DOJ's past practice, it yields two clear conclusions. One, Trump should be prosecuted. Biden should not. Kim, it seems like this man is just trying to be a living, breathing narrative confirmer.
6: Yeah, I don't even know where he gets that. Um, but since you bring it up, uh, Guy, the, look, we've been talking about the president's behavior and how this doesn't look good. There needs to be a lot more attention on the Department of Justice and its behavior in this and its decision making up until now. Uh, you know, we were talking about the lawyers who sends lawyers to go find these documents. Um, Then we find out, according to uh, newspaper reports in my newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, that there were discussions early on between the Department of Justice and the Biden team about whether or not DOJ should take the lead in any subsequent searches. Okay, and it was decided to just leave it to the Biden lawyers. That's absolutely mind boggling, okay? Because the president ends up sending in people that don't even have security clearances to continue doing his searches. Like, why would the Department of Justice ever allow that to happen? You know, you're essentially allowing the president to send in people that have no ability or right to look at national secrets to go and discover them and then take them at their word that they didn't look at what was in there. Uh, Also to take them at the word in terms of the circumstances in which these documents were found, right? Were they laying out in the open? Were they in some secure facility? What was the condition of them? Why on earth would DOJ not, having been informed that there was unclassified material at Penn Biden, and the fact that, by the way, that information had to have got there via some other place because that office didn't open the assumption ought to be that there's some more out there and that doj would instantly begin this search themselves and And yet
2: and yet that hasn't really happened kim at least until this weekend when we found more stuff and i think some more searches are probably in order by the way struck i'm not sure was hired by a competitor that was annie mccabe another disgraced former fbi guy uh, who lied under oath multiple times just to be clear kim strassel wall street Journal. great to talk to you as always we got a break we'll take it we'll come right back I'm Guy Benson. We're back. A mass shooting in California over the weekend, ending in tragedy. Ten people were murdered. Ten more wounded at a ballroom celebration over the Lunar New Year. This was in Monterey Park, California. So there were people celebrating the Lunar New Year. I know it's like Chinese New Year. And the suspect has now been identified as a 72-year-old Asian man, whose name I'm not going to repeat because that's our policy here with mass shooters. Unusual to have someone that age. Often it's young, disturbed men. This was an old, disturbed man. I know police are still trying to figure out the motive here. The police identifying the killer hours after the suspect had shot and killed himself in a white van in Torrance, which is about half an hour away from the shooting location, Monterey Park. Authorities, according to the FoxNews.com write-up, said this was the same van the suspect had used to flee Saturday night's shooting. And I will just say this. It's horrible. People at a celebration enjoying their Saturday night. Someone walks in with a gun And murders 10 people. There's nothing to say other than express outrage and horror about what happened. And to pray for some degree of peace and resolution for the families of the victims. Because this just feels and sounds so completely senseless. Then he speeds away, drives 30 minutes, and kills himself. That's apparently the timeline. Now, there was a different timeline playing out on social media, which unfortunately is so often the case with tragic events like this and atrocities where there's a report of something happening. People immediately go straight to their ideological battle stations with their pre-prepared arguments with the same people that they're always going to blame no matter what, and we... Watch the same exact pattern play out over and over again. And one component of it is this partisan ideological blame game, where in those initial hours, you had a lot of people saying that this was anti Asian hate and white supremacy. Not just random Twitter users that I'm not picking, but major news organizations were at least insinuating heavily that must have been the case. I think NPR in particular was leading with that theory early on. Then, of course, there were the immediate calls to ban assault rifles, quote-unquote, because the assumption was that must have been the gun that was used. So we've got people teeing off on white supremacy and assault rifles, viciously attacking anyone who might question them or disagree with them, and then as the actual evidence comes in, it turns out that the assailant himself was not white, was not a white supremacist, was an Asian or a man of Asian descent, which was obviously complicating to the initial racial factors that were just imputed onto this thing automatically, reflexively by certain people who do this for political reasons. And then the big angry discussion about like banning AR-15s continued Regardless of the facts, and the facts suggest here that the weapon in question was some sort of handgun held with one hand, a semi-automatic, semi-automatic handguns are extremely common. And the idea of trying to ban handguns is something that a lot of anti-gun activists are a little bit nervous to talk about. They want to focus on certain kinds of guns that look scarier, when in fact the vast majority of gun deaths in this country are inflicted by handguns. So, I mean, do they want to ban all guns? Some people are willing to say yes. Other people aren't. It becomes, I think, politically untenable. The point is, some of the initial assumptions that were jumped to – instantly were wrong the capital n narrative that people wanted to go with was not supported by the evidence or the facts and they were unwilling to even wait until those came out i know the news media has been covering this story very heavily as they should 10 people are dead i do wonder if this will be a big lasting long bitter national conversation given the facts that have emerged that don't quite align with certain narratives that the media very much latches onto, along with their allies in the Democratic Party. This one might not fit the mold quite well enough for them to turn it into the big national conversation that they were prepared to, if the details might have been a little bit different. I guess we'll see. I hate to be this cynical about it. The families of the victims certainly have no room for this kind of cynicism or politicizing of anything they are going through some of the worst most horrific gut-wrenching moments of their lives but in terms of our society's response broadly to things like this it's hard not sometimes to get cynical because there are patterns that repeat themselves and we saw some of that playing out over the weekend Our thoughts and our prayers, which, no, is not a trite thing, go out to the victims and to their families. Absolutely senseless. So horrible. And we didn't want to just ignore it. It's a big news story. We're going to cover, talk about it, try to do so honestly on The Guy Benson Show. With that, we will step aside. We will be right back. Please stay tuned.
1: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
2: It's the Monday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for all sorts of content, plus the free podcast on demand every day. Well, we've mentioned it a few times here on the program already, but over the weekend, we got yet another development in the classified document scandal engulfing the Biden administration. It was two Fridays ago. That Corinne Jean-Pierre, who is really performing worse than ever in a role that she has never really come close to mastering, but she told the country, not this past Friday, but the Friday before that, that the searches for additional classified documents and materials had been completed. This was after a slow and embarrassing and probably politically painful rollout of multiple revelations up to that point already. With the initial discoveries, they tell us, I'll add that always as a caveat because we're going based on their timeline, the initial alleged discoveries coming before the election, last year, early November. And so the president's attorneys had gone about seeking additional documents, rifling through the president's house to make sure they hadn't missed anything. And don't worry, everyone, the process has been completed. That was the official line from this White House two Fridays ago. And then the very next day, last Saturday, again, not this past Saturday, the previous one, we got new reporting about new documents that had been found, classified documents not previously disclosed at the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware. So we had, I think at that point, four or five separate discoveries The closet at the Penn Center office in D.C., then multiple rooms at Biden's house in Delaware, one of them. The garage, of course, infamously at that house as well, which Biden sort of tried to excuse by saying, well, it was locked with his Corvette. That was one of the many unforced errors in all of this. So then... A few days passed without any news of additional materials coming to light. I kept wondering, I know they said they did some sort of cursory review at the president's beach house. We know he spends a lot of time there, quite a lot of time in Rehoboth Beach. Are we confident that that house is completely free of confidential classified information that shouldn't be there? I certainly was not confident. I was hoping that at some point we would stop relying exclusively on the lawyers of this president paid to protect him and his interests. Rely on them less and actual investigators more. If we're going to take this thing as seriously, quote unquote, as Biden claims to. But I at least made the assumption. Wrongly, as it turns out. That they had exhausted the search at long last at the Wilmington House, after a very humiliating and high-profile false start. But then it was Saturday night, and the news broke that, nope, they found more at that house again. And this time, interestingly, the documents in question, Mark classified, spanned a period of years that entailed not only Joe Biden's time as vice president, but also dating back to his time as a senator, which means dating back to 2009 at the latest, right? Because Biden won the vice presidency in 08, took office with Barack Obama in 09. That's when he left the Senate. And then before that, he had been in the U.S. Senate for decades. So saying that it was dating back some of this stuff to his time as a senator is a very wide net to cast in terms of the range of years that might be at play here. Now, when his lawyers, because, again, we find out all of this stuff through his lawyers, revealed this and put this out into public view late on Saturday, there was something that caught my attention. Because a lot of people, a lot of journalists, summarized it as saying they found six more documents. But if you read the way that they framed it, it was much more slippery than that. So in this statement from Biden's lawyers, we find out, first of all, this was a DOJ search. Finally, this wasn't his lawyers sort of looking under couches and stuff going through cabinets this time. It was the Justice Department that requested to actually do some of the searching themselves, which I think probably was in order all along, certainly after the initial discovery was made in that closet. And now there are reports that additional requests by the DOJ to conduct searches have been granted by the Biden people. So... This might not be over still, right? Setting aside what to do about it, there might be more discoveries ahead. So that was just an interesting detail. Who conducted this particular new search that we're learning about? But here's what the statement from the lawyers said, quote, DOJ took possession of materials it deemed within the scope of its inquiry, including six items consisting of documents with classification markings and surrounding materials some of which were from the president's serve in the Senate, and some of which were from his tenure as vice president. So that's one of the sentences in this statement from Biden's lawyers. And if you parse it, which I think you have to, we're talking about lawyers here, they're probably hoping that people sort of take the mental shortcut. Six items, they're like, okay, six more documents. But they said six items consisting of documents with the markings and the surrounding materials, plural. So could an item, like they say six items were found, could an item be an entire file cabinet or at least an entire file or a drawer of files? Would that count as an item consisting of documents? I think if you really look at the way they phrased it, they're giving themselves quite a lot of wiggle room about what was actually discovered, and the quantity of it. If they had just found six documents or six pieces of paper, I think they would have said that, because what they have tried to do at every stage of this is minimize, 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 while maximizing how they're doing everything the right way. Right? Oh, they're just, they're following protocols, they're being so cooperative, they want to pat themselves on the back for all of that. And by the way, the notion that they're following protocols properly And, like, they deserve kudos for that after what seems to be a massive, systematic repeat breach of not just protocols but the law on classified materials. It's like they're really hoping we will focus over here at all their cooperation and all their supposed alleged transparency, but the protocols, the law, the actual following of important rules pertaining to our national secrets, well – That wasn't done perfectly. Although, don't forget, President Biden said just last week he has no regrets about any of this. Now, that was before the new discovery was announced. Maybe some regrets will start to creep in, start to seep in. I would imagine, based on their previous spin, that Joe Biden was once again totally surprised that classified materials was found to be in his possession at his house. Like, how many more times... Do you have to be surprised? Obviously, I'm not making this comparison, but like if there was a serial killer burying bodies in his basement and out in his garden and the cops unearth another one, like, would you believe him? He's like, well, I am surprised anew. I am surprised freshly by this new discovery. Like, Come on. We're up to, what, half a dozen discoveries now? Does Joe Biden have his shocked face that he has to put on every single time they find one? You start to wonder, were there any rooms in the house without classified documents sitting in them somewhere? Six items consisting of documents and surrounding materials. That is, to me, a phrase filled with weasel words. Designed, I think, deliberately by lawyers in lawyerly fashion to try to not mislead, but kind of distract and camouflage. That's my read on that. Then there's also the matter of the documents dating back to Biden's time in the Senate. I saw a number of people who have worked in the Senate, Senate aides, staffers, who were saying all weekend, hang on. How is that possible? It is very hard to view classified documents in the Capitol, let alone remove them from the Capitol, no matter who you are. Senator Ted Cruz sounding a similar alarm. He tweeted this on Saturday evening. He said, this says some of the docs, it's the story from foxnews.com about this. Some of the docs are from his Senate service talking about Biden. Cruz asks, serious question, how on earth did he do that? I've served in the Senate for 10 years. Every single classified doc I've read, 100% have been in a secure skiff in the basement of the Capitol What the hell? Cruz asks. And now by the admission of Biden's own attorneys, some classified materials from Biden's time in the Senate, not even the White House as vice president. His time in the Senate, that is somehow sitting at the Wilmington House. How did it get out of the Senate? How did it get to Biden's house? Why? These are things that we don't have answers to. And all the statements coming from Team Biden are just about how cooperative they've been and then declining to comment any further because there's a special or referring to this person, referring to that person. DOJ has said, no, the White House is welcome to comment. And the White House says, no, we're not. It has to be the DOJ. It's this little roundabout game where they don't want to really say anything. I was on TV yesterday on Media Buzz with Howie Kurtz. And I was up against Laura Fink, who's a Democratic strategist and sort of PR spinmeister guru. And I'm not really that for the Republicans, right? I'm conservative, but I'm a political analyst. I try to be intellectually honest. I'm not out there trying to spin something for a political party, even though I am generally more aligned with Republicans. Laura was doing her best to spin this thing. There's not really much to work with. She went the What About Trump route, of course— she kept talking about the possibility of an ultimate vindication for Joe Biden when we learned the facts. And it's just very strange. She said, oh, this is about an optics problem. This is about the communication shop not communicating well. This isn't about the meat of the problem. It's not about the substance. And she was suggesting or almost predicting that Biden would be vindicated. And we've heard that from a number of different people as well, elected Democrats, some of the talking heads. Like, what are these people talking about? What vindication? You had stuff, including top secret and SEI material, sitting unsecured in places where it was illegal for that stuff to be. There's no vindication. That's the meat of it, that's the substance of it. If you or I were found with any of these things in our garage, we would be in handcuffs. I understand he's now the president, it's politically sensitive. There's an established precedent that if you are high enough up in the government, i.e. Hillary Clinton, and you do egregiously illegal things on this front, you're going to get leeway and you're not going to get prosecuted. I understand all of that. But for the little people or even the middling players, these are just straight up crimes. And now we're seeing over and over and over again how often this stuff was mishandled. The protocols shattered. The laws violated. They keep finding more. That is the substance. I don't understand. Like, the only vindication that could happen is if it turned out that Joe Biden's grandkid wrote Top Secret in crayon and it just was like a coloring book. It wasn't actually classified materials. That's the only way this becomes a vindication. Obviously, that's not the case. They are not disputing that this stuff is classified, including Top Secret. So that's the scandal. And it keeps growing because they keep finding more examples of it. And we might not be done yet. And I just want to once again underscore a point that I made on Friday because it's even more relevant now given the developments and revelations over the weekend. In addition to the whole feigning surprise thing, Biden should at least pretend, speaking of feigning, he should pretend to care about this and to actually take it seriously since that's the thing that they keep saying over and over again. One of the only consistent things that we hear from this crew is that he takes these matters very seriously. He should, he obviously doesn't, right? Based on his actions, based on the proof in the pudding, he doesn't take them seriously by definition. We have proof of that six times over. or six troves of varying sizes, this last one being sort of mysteriously and ambiguously described. So multiple rounds of evidence that he doesn't take it seriously, but he should at least pretend that he does. If only for the cogency and consistency of the talking point that they say over and over again like a little religious chant very very seriously but he doesn't take it seriously by his actions he doesn't take it seriously through his words either there's an arrogance part of it there's a stupidity part of it right the little corvette locked garage line that was arrogance plus stupidity on his part for him to say as he did late last week that he has no regrets What they should be writing on the little piece of paper in front of him, the little card, is that he does have regrets. He's resolving to make sure this type of thing can never happen again. But because of the arrogance and the stupidity, that unfortunate marriage in the president's mind, he actually said that he doesn't regret anything, even though we have multiple examples of violations of the law. No regrets is the president's posture on all of this. You start to wonder if they'll stop with the insulting surprise line and if they'll pivot to regrets sometime soon, the worse and worse this gets for him. As happened once again over the weekend. It's the clown car of incompetence from the self anointed adults in the room. Well, it's speeding ahead, destination unclear. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
1: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
2: Back on the Guy Benson Show, Democrats were in full-blown abortion advocacy mode over the weekend, marking what would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v.ersus Wade as an active constitutional precedent it was overturned last year by the Dobbs decision. Democrats very angry about that. They are abortion fanatics. Vice President Kamala Harris went down to Florida to hold an abortion pep rally. And at that pep rally, she had this to say. Notice a few omissions from this reference to the Declaration of Independence. Cut 21.
0: It is a promise of freedom and liberty, not for some, but for all. we made in the Declaration of Independence that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness
2: what did she leave out from that little paraphrase of the Declaration we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness she said endowed by whom in the Declaration it's very clear by our creator, Capital C. And there's another inalienable right that's mentioned first in the list that she just elided and omitted. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. She skipped right to liberty. She excised life in this speech supporting unfettered, fanatical abortion on demand. I'm sure that was not a coincidence. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. One of our colleagues here at Fox News was assaulted by a group of people in New York City over the weekend. A very scary situation. He will tell us his story when we come back. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day on demand. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Find out more at thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Well, joining us now is one of our colleagues here at Fox News. He's a meteorologist on Fox News Channel and for Fox Business as well. You've seen him on our air for a number of years. Adam Klotz is with us. And, Adam, it's good to have you here. Guy, Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So I saw this story yesterday in the New York Post, and obviously it disturbed me. I saw some of the images that accompanied the story. And the upshot is you were, after the Giants game, the NFL playoff game over the weekend, late that night, you were on a subway car. I'd imagine heading home, and there was an incident that was occurring in your subway car. You tried to intervene sort of in a light way to help someone as a good Samaritan. That then resulted in a pretty brutal assault against you. Just walk us through what happened. Uh, Well, yeah, the Giants took a beating, and then
4: I got a beating shortly after that. (laughs) Ouch. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, you kind of summed it up there. I was going home from a bar after watching the game, and I was on my way heading home. Uh, And a group of, I would say, seven or eight teenagers were all kind of hanging out in part of the subway I was sitting. The subway car was relatively full. It was not some dark, eerie type of setting where you felt nervous at all because, you know, you get late enough at night, and maybe it starts to feel that way. But at this point, it wasn't like that. Uh, there was an older gentleman, I would say, in his upper 60s, sitting kind of across me, across the subway car. And these kids, they saw one light a joint, and with the lighter still lit in his hand, just put the flame on this guy's hair, and it went up like a matchbook. Just boom, his hair, his head's on fire. And he starts batting out his hair. And without really giving a second thought, I was just like, yo, guys, you cannot do that. And pretty quickly, he did not like that, one of these kids. And he's like, what did you say to me? I'm like, we, you can't do that. And it became like, a, you're going to tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. And from there, it just, uh, it was suddenly like I challenged him. And that wasn't good. You know, he didn't want to be challenged. I got uh, i got slugged in the face, got a, caught a left hook. I Then some other guy down the way, he's like, you kind of need to get out of here. Like he could see it intensifying and all these other guys were kind of, starting to get more involved and I actually me and every person on this train moved subway cars we left so I've been hit once or twice now I'm bleeding a little I try to walk away from it at the next stop the doors open they all rush from their car into my car and just jump me and just beat me they get me on the ground they're punching the curb stopping they're kicking it it was a it was a bad situation
2: how many of these teenagers were attacking you, would you estimate? All seven or eight of them? Uh, I would say maybe like five of them were, to, were on me. Okay. And yeah. I know that a few of them have been identified, 15 years old, 17 years old. So these are, you know, high school-aged kids. And, I see, I did not know the detail about how you tried to de-escalate. You instinctively, I mean, just everything that you're saying is pretty shocking including the fact, as I saw some people when this story came out, wondering whether you were telling the truth about all the details. Sounds like there were a lot of witnesses because it was a crowded train car, not just, you know, you and these kids and the one other guy. That's important information. They light just what, just for fun, just for the enjoyment of it. They light this man's hair on fire while lighting their drugs. Like, this is what you witnessed, yes, and you simply objected to that. Earning yourself a punch in the face, you then leave. You go to a different car. They clearly then regrouped and planned to come beat you in a much more significant way, came into your car and were just pounding away. Did anyone come to your assistance? How long did this beating last?
4: Um, yeah, they fully charged. And, you know, it's the, it's the, we left the car and went to, I mean, I think we, as in the whole train car was kind of running from them, even though they were only targeting me. Uh, You know, uh, The next stop is probably five or six blocks is it, so it's only a couple of minutes, and I'm just still gathering my thoughts like what just happened back there, and those doors open, and they all charged. So it goes from like one or two to now suddenly the entire group has me on the ground, and they're kicking me, and they're hitting me, and I would say like as far as everyone else on the train, they were quick to help. Someone pulled the emergency brake. They were trying to get help for me, but no one was physically – doing anything to put themselves in a situation between me and like the violence. And they were very driven on these, these guys were not happy that I stood up to them and they were going to make me pay for it. I remember very clearly, I'm on the ground. They get me on the ground and they're kicking and punching. And there's a, there's a repeating, put him to sleep, put him to sleep. Like they want to knock me out. They want me to be out cold. And once you're out cold, there's no way to defend yourself. So I was really focused on trying to cover my neck and cover my head so that they weren't getting any clean blows there. And as a result, I got kicked and stomped in the in the abdomen and in the the ribs a lot. But they weren't able to knock me out, which I think would have been a much worse situation.
2: How long did this last? It probably happened very quickly, probably felt like it lasted forever. Do you have any handle on how long that went? I really
4: don't. It's hard for me to know. From the time they the, they lit the man's hair on fire, we were traveling south from 34th Street, and by the time the police were there and I was like, getting up from being beaten, we were on 18th, and that's probably like three stops. So that would have taken I mean, the whole incident maybe 10 minutes, but the actual beating, its I, the adrenaline's pumping. Time almost ceases to exist. Hmm.
2: So you went to the hospital. You were treated for minor injuries. They x-rayed you. It could have been a lot worse, but... You also were clearly the victim of a very serious attack uh, with bruising and blood on your face. Uh, Since you were protecting your face, I can only imagine that the the bruising and the lacerations on on your torso are worse, yeah? So what you've seen on my face, there were some cuts that maybe
4: look worse, but the pain is not even remotely the same. The pain in my body is ten times what you're looking at on my face. They they really, I'm
2: really sore. It's hard to breathe. They got in really good blows. So the New York Post reports that three of these assailants were captured, two 15-year-olds and a 17-year-old. And they were then released. They were cut loose. They prepared some juvenile reports. Their parents were called to come pick them up. The Post writes, it's unclear why the three nabbed suspects were released without facing charges. But an NYPD spokesman claimed Sunday the department did not have that option because of their ages and the fact that the crime involved an apparent misdemeanor. And the story also says that recently New York City changed the law to make it harder to charge minors as adults, even in attacks like this where they revised the age where one could be charged this way for an assault, uh, which is exactly what happened here. This might have pertained to one of the kids, a 17-year-old, could have been charged in the past as an adult, but now we have much more equitable and justice-minded laws. And unless I'm reading this incorrectly, and you probably have more insight into this, Adam, you will really have to jump through some hoops with an appeal here just to have any possibility for criminal charges? Is that your understanding of this or am i missing something um so that
4: is basically my understanding there have been some conversations with the detective who's been put on the case and it's still kind of ongoing i think uh, i'm going to hear a little bit more about my options in the days to come but i do get the general sense that yeah it's going to almost certainly be a slap on the wrist if it's anything at all and i do think it's pretty wild to think that a victim can be beaten badly and be limping around the city. And On top of that, uh, an ambulance ride and a night in the hospital. At very least, I'll be paying a deductible. So it's money out of my pocket. It's pain and suffering. And if you are the person who does the attack, you go home that very night and you go to bed, even after being caught red-handed. It's wild. It's really wild to think
2: about. Well, and it's not only that. Because you you think about the series of actions that led to the culmination of this beating. And I, first of all, don't understand. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert on these things. I don't understand why that would be a misdemeanor. Like, I can see maybe, you know, a fistfight that escalates on both sides might not be a felony. But there was a decision that they made to pursue you and beat you further, having already assaulted you for your crime of, like, challenging their little manhood or whatever after they were lighting up drugs in public, there's a, let's just count the crimes. Lighting up drugs in public, then in the process, just for sport, lighting a man's head on fire, how that is anything under a felony is beyond me, right? I mean, lighting someone's hair on fire could lead to that person's death. And they did that just sort of for fun. And then you objected. Then they assaulted you. You got a way to de-escalate And then minutes later, they made a choice to come find you again and beat you thoroughly with the intention of knocking you out. That is a series, in my mind, of crimes taken together that is very serious. How you can say, well, it's just a misdemeanor, and in a best-case scenario, these kids get a slap on the wrist. I don't understand how that serves the interests of public safety or justice at all unless the purpose of the system is to protect criminals. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. I mean,
4: yeah, when you lay it out like that, and that is the way it—that's uh, the way it sure seems like it's going, and that's the way it did go. I can't believe it's just a misdemeanor, either. And I'm with you that the system as a whole, there's there's structural issues there that need to be addressed more than just like the fact that these three guys are going to get away with it this one time. But moving forward, like, who's? Who, why would anyone be?
2: uh nervous about committing any crime if they know that there's no punishment for it no that see that to me is setting aside the horrible ordeal that you've gone through that you have to go to the hospital that you're in pain i mean this this should not happen we live in a civilized society we have laws to protect people from bodily harm for example it's just completely outrageous but in terms of the signal that this sends broadly, writ large to you know society or people in, living in New York City, but especially, I would say, explicitly for these kids, what message are they getting? What lesson are they learning here? Where they are doing drugs in public, lighting an older man's hair on fire, just for, you know, some chuckles, and then when someone says something, like mildly suggesting that they shouldn't light someone on fire, they then punch that person, then pursue that person, and beat them, and send them to the hospital, and they're going to end up with virtually no consequences. I know some people might say, well, that's justice because we don't want to put kids in prison and get them in the system, and then they'll never really have a chance in society. That's sort of the bleeding heart attitude. And I think that there is some room for lenience for kids and making judgments about what kind of trajectory their lives will be put on if you overcharge them with certain crimes. But if you undercharge them for crimes that they do, Adam, I would submit that it is just as bad, if not worse, because they've now been told, at least up to this point by society, that you can do drugs openly in front of people, set someone on fire, and then beat an innocent person and send them to the hospital, And there's not going to be a consequence. Why would they not repeat this type of behavior? Why would they not have that type of really terrible criminal conduct reinforced and this sort of sense of impunity? What kind of adults do we expect those kids are going to become based on this episode? I'm just really struggling to understand what the defense is of doing nothing about what happened to you.
4: I'm empathetic to the idea that a couple of 15-year-olds who did this shouldn't be put in a situation where their life is over. I don't understand how that means nothing, though, either. There's got to be some sort of middle ground where we are not allowed to make mistakes, even though this is a pretty insane mistake. But we're not allowed to make mistakes at 15, but it also doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and get the idea that that's the way life is going to be. There has to be a way For there to be some sort of accountability and then Well, and it's not
2: like – it's not just a mistake. It's a really bad crime and a series of them. It's not, oops, I went to a party with drinking and the cops came and we all sort of scattered. Or, you know, oops, I was being stupid and I broke someone's window by accident. Or, oops, I didn't study properly for for a test and I shouldn't have done it but I wrote a few answers on my hand and I cheated on the test and I got caught. You know, these are mistakes, that's different than lighting someone's hair on fire, and then chasing someone who objects to that and beating them and sending them to the hospital. That is way beyond the scope of a mistake. I, I think, in my mind, and I would say in most people's minds.
4: And I do wonder, and I hope, you know, some sort of some sort of punishment would maybe deter. Who's to say from five or six years it doesn't only get more intense and the next time there's a knife? And, you know, you want you want to deter this, obviously. I wouldn't want to be in a situation where uh, these guys are five or six or seven years older and bolder and decide that they're going to come after anyone even harder.
2: Oh, they will be. Right, I mean, th- that's the thing. When you coddle this sort of thing, you invite more of it, and you almost guarantee that it's going to get worse. I have one more question for Adam Klotz. Our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Adam, stand by. We'll be right back after this.
1: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
2: Adam Klotz is our guest, Fox News meteorologist, who was beaten by a gang of teenagers in a New York City subway car over the weekend. Last question, Adam, before we let you go. The cops who investigated this and made some of the arrests, I mean, what are they telling you? Because they can't be okay with someone being victimized on the streets that they're sworn to help protect and defend but ultimately it's kind of i guess based on how the law is written and based on who the da is one of these soros back left wingers i guess a lot of this is out of their hands
4: that's a great question the officer who initially was there with me uh his name is officer zapata he i just felt was an amazing kind of frontline worker on this he he seems like a great cop he was there he grabbed he's the one who himself got all three of the suspects that they did get of the big group and he was with me he was with me in the ambulance from all the way till i went through the hospital and i got the x-rays and he has only been on the force for like 18 months and he was really driven and thought you know what i do not like that this is happening i've Dealt with assault. My family members, of my family has once been assaulted, and it's really important to me that we put an end to this. And he left. I left him with the idea that, like, oh, this is a guy who's driven, and he wants justice.
2: And I don't think. Well, he and he. Did. I mean, he was able to go make he, arrests, he, and then and then for he, what? Right, he goes and does his job, finds some of the guys, arrests them, and they're cut loose within hours, with probably very little prosecution, if anything, coming down the line from the people who make those decisions. Which I think is really one of the most blood boiling elements of this whole thing that goes way beyond you and transcends any single incident it is i would say encapsulating so much of the problem in cities like new york right now adam klotz we've got to leave it there i hope you continue to feel better i hope there is some justice done in this case thanks for coming on and talking about it and i'm just so sorry this happened to you of course thanks for having me adam klotz meteorologist here at fox news crime victim in new york city over the weekend It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
1: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: As we continue here on the Happy Hour, Monday edition on the Guy Benson Show, let's play part of our interview from earlier today, top of our show, with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, out with a new book, Never Give an Inch, Here's part of our discussion. You give a lot of advice in terms of public service and defending American interests in this book, Never Give an Inch. And I sometimes like to zoom out and talk to someone who has not just the experience as Secretary of State but CIA director, congressman. When you look at your public service thus far and your career in this space thus far, what would you say is – the most significant legacy that you have contributed to, in your mind,
3: guy okay.
2: boy, it's it's hard to know, and I don't spend a
3: lot of time yet thinking about legacy. But if if you look at the book "Never Give an Inch," it's a it's a theory of public service. It says, look, it, there are things that, that we can compromise on, but there are a handful of things. Uh, America is the most sex- exceptional nation in the history of civilization. The the greatness that our founders bequeathed to us, you just have to stay at it. You can't give an inch. And so if you look from my time as a young soldier now, goodness gracious, almost 40 years ago, to my time as a member of Congress and then CIA and state, in each of those places, I was every day trying to do my best to deliver on behalf of the American people. I was I was fearless. I was relentless. Um, I didn't get it. We didn't get it right every single day, but we were determined to put the American people in a place that made their life and that of their children, grandchildren, more prosperous and more secure. And I think for those who enter public service, there can't be any higher expectation.
2: Thinking specifically about the foreign policy of the Trump administration, which in many ways was quite different than what we're seeing now under the subsequent administration, is there something that you think is the top Trump-Pompeo foreign policy legacy at the top of the list,
3: we were four years of reminding the world that America can be strong and can deter aggression around the world, and it doesn't have to send the 82nd Airborne every day or 40,000 soldiers someplace to do it. Okay, we were we had a, we had a model that was just fundamentally different. We we didn't we didn't we weren't expeditionary, we weren't expansive, but we didn't allow any new wars to start for four years. And you know we. we we deterred through american power and strength we crushed the caliphate. we pushed back on chairman kim we were the first administration to acknowledge the threat from the chinese communist party putin didn't invade ukraine we have four significant peace deals in the middle east all of this without significant military conflict i think that is a an achievement that looks and feels like the reagan legacy right which is peace through strength actually can work and if you look at what's changed these past two years I think it's the absence of that strength.
2: Ukraine comes up a number of times in this book, Never Give an Inch. There is this moment now, Mr. Secretary, in American politics, especially on the right, a certain element of the right in U.S. politics, where there's a growing sense that maybe Ukraine has gotten enough support from the U.S. It's not really in our national interest to continue to support the Ukrainians if it ever was. Uh, some, I would say, wrong in my mind, equivalencies between Putin and Zelensky. There's just some people saying, you know, it's not our fight. I know we don't have boots on the ground, but let's just stop spending money there. You know, who's really to say who's in the right? I wonder how that kind of talk strikes you based on your experience. And if you think that's wrong headed, what American interests are at stake right now in Ukraine?
3: So, Guy, yes, there, there's always been an element of the conservative movement that has been, call it uh, isolationist, call it un- unwilling uh, to do what it is we're doing in Ukraine today. Um, I think they fundamentally just misunderstand risk to people right here at home in the United States, uh, to your point about American interests. Uh, Xi Jinping is watching what's taking place in Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Putin has no intention of stopping in Ukraine. He will. He will. He's told us as much. He will continue to advance throughout all of Europe. And we have deep interest in helping a, a sovereign nation defend itself. They haven't asked for our soldiers; they just want our stuff. And you can see what happens to the American economy when we allow Russia to gain power and influence. When authoritarian regimes are on the rise, the American people suffer here at home. so while i I, I wish it was as easy as saying what happens saying that what happens in Kiev stays in Kiev, that's just simply not the case. Ask any Kansas farmer who grows red winter wheat. You can see the impact on fertilizer price, on farm implements. You can see that these things very quickly begin to have impacts on ordinary families all across America. Uh, We should have done more. We should have done more faster. We should do more faster tomorrow. We need to bring this war to a conclusion as quickly as we can in a way that gets us true permanent peace in the region.
2: My full interview with Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, author of the brand-new book Never Give an Inch, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Part of our free podcast, the whole show, every day, on demand, start to finish, no charge to you. Totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a bit of a hodgepodge, including War Wyatt on the war path. Uh-oh. We'll explain that when we return.
1: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
2: home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show Monday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home. The podcast is free every day. And at the beginning of every show, I give the day and the date. It is January 23rd, which means it is Adam's birthday, my husband. Very exciting. Although a Monday birthday isn't exactly the best, which is why we celebrated it over the weekend with some friends. We got a reservation at one of our very favorite restaurants in D.C. and just had a great time, a great meal. We had several long drinks before and after dinner, as a matter of fact. And the reservation had been made well in advance, and so it just timed out such that I didn't have an opportunity to watch almost any of the Giants-Eagles game, which is just as well because the Giants got throttled. In Philadelphia. So I didn't really miss much. The Eagles advance. They will host the 49ers in the conference championship game. Over in the AFC, boy, the Bills really struggled at home. The Bengals looked really good. Cincinnati moving on to face Kansas City for a slot in the Super Bowl. So the game that I was most interested in, at least potentially, ended very badly for my team. But I was at dinner having a very nice time. Actually... The most interesting non-birthday-related festivities event was at one point during dinner. I went to the restroom, checked my phone, and they had found more of the documents, another group, bunch, trove of documents in that weirdly worded statement that they put out from Biden's lawyers. We talked about all of that in the last hour. So if you miss it, you can go back on the free podcast. But it was interesting because we were talking about Adam's birthday and some of the fun that we had over the weekend on our show planning call earlier in the day. And as you may recall, last Friday, Christine was off. Christine was on one of her many vacations, so she wasn't here at work. But she ended up listening to The home stretch, during which I gave a few reviews of Broadway theater productions that I had seen recently when I was up in New York, including the Michael Jackson musical that I was raving about that I saw whenever it was, it was last week, and we learned another new little detail about producer Christine as it relates to Michael Jackson. You think that you know everything. You feel like there couldn't possibly be more with Cookie. And then, just wait, there is more. Christine, you're calling this a party trick that you have up your sleeve.
7: Yes, but I need to clarify something. You said this on the meeting as well. I was not on vacation. Every time I take a day, sometimes it's personal days. Sometimes it's something I need to do. You always say I'm on vacation. It makes it seem like I'm constantly on vacation, and I'm not.
2: I mean, it's just one nonstop holiday party for Christine. Just (laughs) vacation after vacation with a tiny bit of work squeezed in between. It's like a very European approach to To life you know that's that's sort of how you live
7: my husband had a little procedure and i was his nurse for the day friday plus the weekend lucky him mm. um but anyway that's uh, yeah. that's
2: how you might describe the vacation but we know what's up <laughs> so anyway while you're on vacation you had some downtime to listen to the home stretch on friday and you were getting all excited about michael jackson and, first of all, if you are a fan of his, and we will learn here in a second, clearly you are, you have to see the show, MJ. It is – you will absolutely love it. Like, you will lose your mind, Christine.
7: Um, will I get to dance? Were there people, like, standing up dancing?
2: There were people, like, actively dancing in their seats. Oh, yes. Very exciting. I mean, uh, I am a huge – Just trust Michael –
7: Huge Michael fan. And I just want to let you know, I felt very sad for you listening to that home stretch. Well, A, because I wasn't there. Uh, sad for you as well as your audience. And B, because <laughs> I I think I'm going to, I mean, I'm your friend, your best friend. And no longer will you be going to Broadway shows alone. I am now going to be bro- your Broadway buddy. And from now on, when you find a show, when you're in New York City that you want to go to, you just let me know and I'll be there.
2: Mm. Oh, I, see what I, I, I think, did there? yeah, what you'll probably end up doing is seeing a playbill on my Instagram story, and that is how you will find out that I'm seeing a show. I should not alert you in advance, as I have been recently, lest oh. you show up. I can, and I would, and I will. I think, I think <laughs> if, if this Bobby convalescence thing is real, uh, as, and not like a cover story for your vacation, once he's fully recuperated— You should take him to MJ the musical because it's fantastic. And as it turns out, you are not only someone who enjoys his music, you really, really enjoy some of the dance moves in a way. I shouldn't be surprised given your all-star aerobic athlete background, but you have done some elaborate choreography. Is that right?
7: Yes, well everybody also, I mean everybody out there probably can do the thriller dance. I, I memorized that when I was a little girl, but I, I, cannot. I
2: I'm familiar really? with s- some of the hand gestures where it's like, you know, the claws back and forth in each yeah. direction like I know that little part of it. That's it though. And there's oh. no there's no moonwalking that I can do. I, that's the extent of it. You, however, are a different story.
7: Yes, I can also and I do often battle dance other people. Uh, to the song of Beat It. There was a a, a very great choreography that goes with that song that Michael did, and it is a party trick of mine. I have battle danced many at weddings, sweet 16s, bar, and bat mitzvahs. Um, I can do it maybe for your 40th. We'll see.
2: Wait, do you Uh, battle dance 13-year-olds at their bar mitzvahs? I could,
7: and I can, and I have. I'm not afraid.
2: Wow, and... Is it like a little short portion of the song that you know, or do you know the whole thing?
7: I pretty much know the whole thing.
2: I memorized it when I was very, very young. So when you say battle dance, I'm sort of imagining Cookie in 8 Mile, you know, with Eminem and the mean streets of Detroit, like the rap battles. You going into underground clubs and dance battling, or even like the, uh, the runway off in Zoolander. Like, this is, what like I'm, this is what I'm picturing. This is like how you get your giggles on the weekend where you tell Bobby that, you know, you're going to go to bed early. And then, as a matter of fact, you sneak out the back door and you're dance battling people to beat it. Yes,
7: it, it, it happened early on in mine and Bobby's relationship. He had invited me very early on to a family wedding of his, a cousin's. And I'm sitting there chatting people up, and the song Beat It comes on, and one of the groomsmen get out there, and they're doing what they think is the dance. I'm sitting there calmly, you know, drinking my drinks with Bobby's grandmother. And I said, oh, nanny, could you please hold my drink for Literally, could you hold my drink for a second? I'll be be right back. And then I went on the dance floor, battle danced him, beat him. And, um, yeah, Bobby's family was smitten with me after that.
2: When you it's say you beat him trip. like was there a vote like Well how I was just better.
7: Like people think they know the dance but then I get out there and like really know the dance. Were you getting
2: like cheered on by people?
7: In my mind I was. I okay. think I was. We'll uh-huh. have to ask Bobby. I was losing the crowd also because this was a in October and the Red Sox were in the playoffs and you also know that the Red Sox, the Boston fans they're like crazy. So I think somebody maybe Bobby yelled out she's a Yankees fan. So they started turning on me at the end.
2: Mm. Well, that's actually one rare circumstance where I would take your side. But oh, thank you. this, I is, think, this is this is just new. This is all new information. It's not off-brand, so I guess it kind of adds up. And what I want to do now is turn this conversation to the person here at the Guy Benson show most known for his dancing. And that is Quiet Wyatt, who just dances the night away, uh, being the free spirit that he is, really every night of the week. You can't keep the guy off the dance floor. But on a more serious note, Wyatt has moved apartments in the last couple of days. And I know that this was a stressful experience, as it always is. Moving sucks. But this one seems especially bad because the building that he's moving out of in D.C., just doesn't really seem like they had their act together and they were jerking him around. Wyatt is rarely incensed, but I would say he's gone on a few rants that I can only describe as War Wyatt on the war path. So, Wyatt, number one, have you moved in yet to this new place? Like, is that process complete?
8: Yes, it has been completed.
2: Do you like the new place? Very much so. Okay. Yet you seem to have like vengeance on your mind toward the old place. Why?
8: Guy, it just comes down to when when people don't do what they say they're going to do and they completely just write you off when it's their job to follow up with you. I have a problem with that. And that was the problem with these people in the leasing office at this apartment complex. And it just, to me, it's such bad business. They lost a really good tenant. And I just want to make sure that all their managers and all the people around know that they dropped the ball and that this whole ordeal happened.
2: How do you plan on doing that? And what makes you think that complaining higher up the food chain will result in anything if everyone is sort of bad at their jobs and not really caring about the work product or the way that people feel?
8: Well, I think I think a nice, strongly worded, well-thought-out, email, several emails now, <laughs> um, I think that might get some attention to some people, and it might just uh, result in hopefully this not happening again to someone, because I think that sometimes you just have to uh, make sure your situation is known to certain people mm-hmm. and higher up uh, positions.
2: Well, look, Wyatt has been literally shaking with rage about all of this, and I actually had asked Dan to have his finger on the dump button, the bleep the bleep button just in case Wyatt uncorked just a string of profanities, as he has so often off the air about this situation. But he kept it together for the purposes of this family-friendly program. And I'm glad that the moving has happened. Sorry that it didn't go well. Hopefully you're able to channel some of that anger and frustration into catharsis out on the dance floor. Maybe Christine can teach you beat it moving forward, and that can be your next move as the crowd goes wild. I've painted quite a vivid picture, have I not? Most of which is completely inaccurate. But Wyatt did move, and I think he does have a legitimate gripe. We're not going to shame the company by name yet, but we'll see. In the meantime, we got to run. Back here tomorrow for more of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Talk to you then. Have a great night.